Let's just pray for a moment. Scars come in many forms, Lord, and I thank you for Reuben's song. And as each of us examine our lives tonight, we thank you for your grace and your amazing mercy. that has carried us through days that we could not carry ourselves through. For those joining us online or here in this room tonight that have never known that grace, may you come in power. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Malcolm. I have the privilege of leading the church here at uh, Dundonald. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here tonight. And if you're joining us online, thank you also for taking the time to um, do that. I don't take it for granted, and I'm very grateful to you. Can I, just before we um, turn to God's Word, do a couple of things? First of all, invite you to add to that prayer list that we are praying into um, a young lady called Naomi. Uh, Naomi's in her mid-twenties, and uh, she is extremely unwell. Uh, she has um, cancer and is undergoing uh, treatment now. It's a very aggressive form of the disease. And I've had the privilege of meeting with her, and I'm praying for her and for her family. And if you could add her to your prayer list, I would be really, really grateful if you could do that. Um, secondly, I just want to take a moment uh, to thank the team here uh, particularly for this week. Um, I have uh, had a lot going on in my own life this week. My wife is very unwell. And I want to thank the leadership team and the staff team for all of your support and your prayers and stepping into gaps that needed to be covered and filled. I am so grateful to God for being part of a team here that ministers together. And I wonder, could you just take a moment and thank them too on my behalf? <clears throat> You've probably been caught by the story of Shamima Begum this week. Um, you may not have heard of her. I'm guessing most of you will. She's the 15-year-old girl um, who left Bethnal Green four years ago to join ISIS. And in the last four years, um, married an ISIS fighter and has just had her third child. The first two died. And uh, she wanted to return to the United Kingdom in order to have her child looked after. And there's been a furore over whether or not she should. I guess there would be a furore in this room too if I was to open the dialogue around whether or not she should be allowed to return to the United Kingdom. The reality is in international law that you're not allowed to have your citizenship stripped from you unless you have dual citizenship. So, and she doesn't have that at the moment. So she is a British citizen and it looks likely that she may return to the United Kingdom and face the full weight of the law. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know whether you think that is a good thing or a right thing or an unfair thing or a, something that um, politicians have been saying, don't let her back, never let her near here. Why should we be paying for her child? Why should we look after that child? Lots of other questions. I want you to think about that for a moment this evening. 
uh, because it ties in very strongly to what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes. But to bring it home here in Northern Ireland for a moment, what do we do with our story? This island that for 400 years has been pulled apart by violence, and particularly the last 40 or 50 years. I wonder what we think we should do with previous offenders, whatever side of the argument they come from. They're difficult questions. They're not easy. I, like you, will have had the impact of the troubles in my own family, loved ones and friends that were murdered or seriously injured as a result of some of the things that have happened in this island in the last 50 years in particular. But what do we do with people when they embody something that we fundamentally disagree with? When they somehow represent to us the other side? How do we handle them, whether it be a 19-year-old girl who has been... um, engaged in terrorist activities on the other side of the world, or people that live in our own communities. I don't know if you've ever seen the film, A Time to Kill. It was uh, made many years ago. And it's about a young black girl who is raped and the trial that ensues. And the lawyer in the movie is played by Matthew McConaughey. And at the end of the, uh, the, the, the trial takes place in the deep south of the United States, where segregation and racism is still profoundly impacting every aspect of society and the way people view one another. And in one of the most powerful closing scenes of a movie that I've ever seen, McConaughey pre- presents his closing argument as the lawyer defending the case. And he describes over five minutes in graphic detail the attack on a young woman. He asks the jurors to close their eyes. And they close their eyes and he goes through every part of it. And at the very end of his presentation, he says, now imagine she was white. In other words, imagine she was like you. Rather than black, rather than the other, imagine she was like you. And I wonder for a moment what you would feel if Shamima was your daughter. Or your granddaughter. Or your sister. How would that change the way you engage in a conversation about what should happen to her? What do you see when you look at someone I want to walk you through an incident in the ministry of Jesus that might help you think about that more closely because I believe God wants to say something about how he sees us tonight. The story is recorded in Mark chapter 5 and I'd love you to find it in your Bibles. We're going to read the first 20 verses of it together. As you find it, I will remind you that this takes place in a small town called Kerasa, or Kersa in the modern um, geography of the Middle East. It's a small town by the sea. And it was probably a holding or an allotment area for 
a larger town of the same name that existed about 35 miles southeast of where our story takes place. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, we're told that this takes place in the region of Gadara. Where our story is, and it's important for it, as you hear it read to you in a moment, about a mile or so from the town, there is a slope of about 40 meters that goes right down into the Sea of Galilee. And not far from there, there are caves or caverns. And uh, archaeologists have discovered in them two things. First of all, they've discovered in those caves that they were burial grounds. And secondly, they have discovered that they were also places where people lived, probably at the same time. Burial ground and living quarters at the same time. Let's read the story. They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there, on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned in the lake. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might stay with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, or ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. The story that I've just read to you is a powerful example of what happens when Jesus' life touches ours. 
In it, we see Jesus bringing life out of death, out of isolation and rejection and despair and abandonment. He brings friendship and community and acceptance and welcome out of dehumanization. He brings back identity and meaning and worth. Out of chaos, he brings peace. Out of fear, he brings faith. Out of evil, he brings good. Out of control, he brings freedom. Out of bondage, he brings deliverance. And out of despair, he brings life. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ is still able to do those things. Across the airways, around the world, and here in this room, the Jesus that this man encountered is the Jesus that is present tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit and still able to bring such beauty out of such despair and out of such dark circumstances. I want to take a simple look at this passage with you and then leave you with a few questions. And I ask you to journey through it with me as I make six simple observations from the story and then reflect on them with you. The first observation is taken from verses one and two, where we read, they came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. My observation is simply this. Jesus always makes time for those that others have abandoned. Here in this, these two verses, you see Jesus in the midst of a, an extremely busy period of ministry with lots of other things going on, having crossed the Lake of Galilee and immediately, immediately he sets foot off the boat. He is um, met by this man. And he doesn't say, I'm too busy. He makes room for him. It isn't the only time in the Gospels that we read of a Jesus that makes room for people. In John chapter 4, he goes out of his way in order to meet one woman at a well. It, there was a much shorter route for the journey that he was making in that passage. But he needed to meet that one woman, and he went out of his way in order to meet her. He does it often. Here in this story, he's not too busy. He doesn't have too many things on his mind. In fact, in Mark's Gospel... He uses a word um, that is translated three different ways in English from Greek, immediately straightway or forthwith, 58 times in 16 chapters. You have this um, image of Jesus moving quickly, speedily, intentionally, deliberately, but never so quickly that he misses someone. He's never in such a hurry that he misses somebody in need. And here in this story, we see that Jesus is never too busy, he is never too tired. He is never too far away, and he is never too angry. This man needed him, and Jesus Christ was there. My second observation is taken from verses 2 to 5 of the passage. And it is very simply this, that Jesus meets this man in the midst of what could only be described as a living death. I'm going to read those verses again slowly with you. Listen to them. Close your eyes if you want for a minute. And imagine the context in which this man is living. When he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs 
with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs. And no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, amongst the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. What kind of existence is that? Verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 5 all say that this man lived in a tomb. The word tomb could be translated as cave. I said earlier that the archaeology of the area that I described this taking place in shows that there are caves nearby where there were both burial grounds and living quarters. That wasn't uncommon. In Second Temple Judaism, under Roman occupation, when people were poor and starving, and they didn't have very much, those that were rejected by their society because of ritual uncleanness or because they couldn't be controlled like this man would often just be shut out. And with no health service, with no social services, with no provision for those that um, had less or were forgotten, they would end up often living somewhere like this because offerings could have been brought to tombs and they would have survived on stealing them. Imagine living in a cemetery. I was in a cemetery on Friday, Carnmoney Cemetery. Imagine living in it. I don't think we can begin to understand what was going on in this man's life. Living amongst the dead. And we know that he's living amongst the dead because the community that he's part of has rejected him. And we know that they've rejected him for several reasons. In verse 3, we are told that he had an unclean or an evil spirit. In verse 3, we're also told that his temper and his behavior was uncontrollable. Presumably, they've tried to control him again and again and again because at the end of verse 3, you'll notice the little phrase. Have a look at it in your Bibles. If you haven't got one, ask somebody else, can you borrow their Bible or just take it off them. Don't even ask them. It says, any, um, it says that he was uncontrollable because they couldn't control him anymore, even with a chain. So it sounds to me like they've tried again and again and again and they've just given up because they can't do it. We're told that he's in chains and in fetters because he breaks the chains and he breaks the cuffs around him. Chained up like an animal. Dehumanized. We know he's strong because he's able to break these chains. And later we will discover that that power is a demonic power because it comes from the very presence of evil not just evil as a, an idea, but evil spirits that lived within him. Listen to verse 5 in the NRSV, the version I read, and then in the NIV, the New International Version, which might be a version that many of you read. Night and day amongst the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. The NIV puts it this way, night and day amongst the tombs in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself. I can't begin to imagine what this man is going through. He's not living, he's existing. Rejected by his community, rejected by society, hiding away, chained up, 
howling like a feral animal, cutting himself with stones. Have you ever felt so alone? Have you ever felt so rejected? Have you ever felt that there was nowhere that you could go except live amongst the dead? In this story, Jesus meets this man in the middle of a life which is death. And in it, we will discover in a moment that the result, his life, is because he has been controlled by evil spirits. Not just by evil forces or evil ideas. Not by an evil culture, not by evil habits. But by forces sent from Satan, the enemy of all that is good, to control him. They name themselves later in the story as legion, indicating that there were dozens and dozens, perhaps thousands, of evil spirits present and controlling this man's life. I don't know if you've always or ever been in a situation where you have witnessed someone who is controlled by an evil spirit. I have, on more than one occasion, and had to find um, myself in a situation where I've needed to rely on the power of Jesus' name, the authority of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And I don't sensationalize stories like this, either in the Bible or in my ministry. But over the years, I've been used in what is described as deliverance ministry. And that's when you meet someone who is controlled by an evil spirit. And the only way to see that spirit released or it's broken off them is to um, deliver them in the name of Jesus and command that evil spirit to leave. That's what happens in this story. I've seen it. I am a relatively intelligent human being. Some of you say, mm -hmm, not so sure about that. I'm pretty rational in the way I think. But I have witnessed this on several occasions over many years of ministry. Do not let the culture around you convince you that evil is just an idea. That it's just some kind of blind force that doesn't have any source or any sense of identity. Evil has an identity. Um, if we as Christians, and I am a follower of Jesus Christ, believe in a God who has a personality and a name and an identity, then the antipathy of that personality and entity is what the Bible describes as Satan. A force that Pastor Pip was talking about this morning, a person with an agenda to dethrone all that is good and right and holy and beautiful. We don't need to guess what his agenda is. In John chapter 10, verse 10, the Bible tells us what his agenda is. The thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And in this man's life, that's exactly what he was doing. Not directly, but through forces called demons, spirits, evil presences in his life, killing his hope, destroying him, um, annihilating his future, robbing him of any sense of identity or personhood. That is what evil still does. It promises you everything and takes everything from you instead. It gives you temporary happiness. But then the minute you think you're happy, you need more, and then you need more, and then you need more, and then you need more until you have nothing left. And then at that point, you realize that you have been lied to all your life. Evil will strip you of your identity. It will strip you of your self-esteem. It will strip you of your dignity. It will strip you of your worth. And in the end, every single force of evil comes from one person and one person alone. And the Bible describes that person as Satan. And I want to say to you tonight, without being melodramatic, 
without trying to create some kind of wrong understanding. I am determined in my life and in my ministry, and I'm determined that here in Dundonald Elam, we wage war on the devil and all of his forces because I believe that God is still able to set men free. He's still able to take women and set them free from forces that have controlled them and dominated them and dehumanized them and robbed them of any hope. In this story, what we see is a result of direct demonic possession that can still take place today. We give access to evil when we um, get involved in stuff that we are unfamiliar with or we think is innocent, occultic practices, Ouija boards, going to spiritualist meetings, playing around with all kinds of weird and wonderful things in the name of innocence and intrigue and interest. Our society has never been more interested in the supernatural. Don't let anybody tell you that we're not interested in supernatural. Just take a look at Netflix or Amazon Prime or television or movies and you will see how interested Western Europe is in spirituality. It's just that we're looking for spiritual life in all the wrong places and then we end up trapped by it. But there is an important thing that I need to say here that is so important that I don't want you to miss it. This man is clearly bound and controlled by an evil spirit. I'll come to our evil spirits. I'll come to that in a moment. There are many people in our society bound by other things. And we treat them as if they are demonic when they are not. People that are different to us. People that have different choices to us not controlled by something evil, not controlled by something demonic. And we treat them as different and we run away from them, none more so than those that live with severe mental illness. And if you read through this story again, I want to make sure that you understand I'm not making a connection between demonic control and mental illness. If you read through this story again, and then ask yourself, if you've ever lived with mental illness, or if you've ever known somebody who lives with mental illness, or extreme versions of it, extreme forms of it, whether that's neuroses or psychosis, or schizophrenia, or a whole range of other things, often people that live with mental illness in its severest form feel like this. And they feel like the church will reject them. Like Christians will turn away from them. Like we won't help them. We won't see them. We'll see the problem. We'll see the symptom, but not the person. Have you noticed something about this story? What is this man's name? Who's his mum? What did dad, what did his dad do? What's his life story? We've no idea. Because what we, what we are presented with is a dehumanized person. Somebody who has been rejected by society and locked away. Think for a moment of the heartbreak of his life. And then ask yourself about those that we dehumanize. Because they are other, because they are different, because they are from a different perspective or another argument. 
I was talking to my children on the way up to, in the car this morning and I said, or this evening, and I said, I realize that this sermon will be really upsetting for some people. As long as we think that we are always right and there's a them that is always wrong, we are perpetuating the myth that there can be a society with two groups of people and we're always the goodies. Here in Northern Ireland, we are brilliant at categorizing people. Just look at what's happened with Liam Neeson and all the, the discussions around him in the last couple of weeks. We are brilliant at categorizing people. We will look at them and we'll make a judgment about them quicker than you could go and get a McDonald's. Because we like to point the finger at someone else and say, they're wrong, they're, they're bad, they're evil, they're people I wouldn't trust, they're folk that you don't hang about with. And dare I suggest to you for a moment that when we respond to people, whether it be a, a, a Shamima or, a, or somebody else, with a, we don't want that type of person anywhere near us. We are stepping into a place which is essentially rejecting somebody else's humanness. And we're seeing the issue before the person. Now compare that with Jesus, who always sees the person before the issue who sees the identity of a person, who sees their life, who understands them. This man's life was marked by heartbreak, was marked by rejection, was marked by pain, was marked by loneliness, and was marked by demonic control. But the third simple thing I want to observe with you is that Jesus Christ has the power and authority to come, overcome every force of evil and every force that separates us from life. In verses six to nine, we read, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. This is a, a difficult set of verses to understand, but they're really important. And I'll explain why in a moment. I think between verses six and nine, the word he is, getting, is, is used so often that you can end up getting confused with what's happening here. And I think, I'm not saying I'm right, but I think if you read the text closely, here's what's happening in these three verses. Either the demonic forces controlling this man are drawn to Jesus and are doing everything they can to recoil from him. Hence, you have the, what is your name? We are legion. What do I have to do with you, son of God, Jesus, son of God? You hear that language. Either... What we're seeing is this, these demonic forces who are in, instinctively drawn by the power of God toward Jesus in whom the power of God rests. And they are fighting against him. That is certainly happening at least in some part. Or there's something else going on. I think there's something else going on too. And I think the word he is used both to describe the man and the forces that are living within him. And a close reading of the text would give you this kind of idea. The man, locked away, rejected and alone 
is running toward Jesus. And as he runs towards Jesus, there's a force that rises in him that says, what have we got to do with you, Jesus, son of God? And Jesus says to the man, what is your name? And the forces within him cry out, we are legion for we are many. In other words, there are two conversations happening at the same time here. One is with this poor, rejected, isolated human being who has nothing left to live for. And the other with the forces of darkness that will do everything they can to leave him wrecked so long as they don't have to kneel before Jesus Christ. Jesus has the power to set him free. He speaks right into these forces in this man's life. He names them legion, thousands of evil spirits. And by their own confession, they say, what do we have to do with you? And they beg him not to destroy them. They beg him not to um, annihilate them completely. There are two conversations going on at once. That's because there's always power in the name of Jesus. We used to sing an old song, Jesus, just the mention of your name. Flowers bloom and the desert grows again. We heard from Acts chapter four, verse 12 this morning, his is the only name given amongst people under heaven by which we can be saved. In Philippians chapter two, when Paul was writing about Jesus, he said, he has been given a name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under the earth and proclaim that he is Lord to the glory of God. The book of Revelation shows us what happens at the end of time. And at the end of time, every living creature bows before him. Every force, every spiritual entity, everything bows before him. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. And we see in this story, a man controlled by evil and Jesus breaking the power of evil in his life. He is still able to do that. Whether that evil comes to you with an addiction to alcohol or drugs or money or sex or power or religiosity or being in control or wealth or prestige or position, Jesus is able to break demonic power in people's lives. But we also see a rejected, isolated, alienated human being running to Jesus. Do they run to the church? Do the men and women of Belfast, of Lisburn, of Castlereagh, of Dundonald, of Bangor, of Newtonards, when their lives fall apart and everything is being stripped from them, their identity is being removed and they end up feeling like commodities and their whole lives are falling apart, is it the church that they run to? Why not? Why isn't it us? Why isn't every community of followers of Jesus in Ireland a lighthouse for the lost? Why aren't we a beacon that shines out hope to people who have been stripped of their dignity and their value and their worth? 
Why do they run everywhere else? Why do they try everything else? Because of human nature, yes, but also because over the years, tradition and religion and systems and structures and attitudes and language and words send a message to people that says, we don't want you. We'd rather you live in a tomb than come near us. But Jesus brings life. He sets people free. He opens doors. He chains, unchains broken hearts. He gives people life. Oh, that we would be such a church. That men and women and boys and girls, trapped and forgotten, controlled by sin and heartbreaking, whose lives are empty, would turn to us and they would find in us acceptance and grace and mercy and tenderness and love. Tonight, let me say something to you. Whoever you are, online or in this room, wherever you are from, whatever you have done, Jesus will welcome you if you run to him. If you are willing to lay down your sin, if you're willing to turn away from the chains, if you're willing to say, take it all, he will not reject you. I'm sorry if the church has rejected you. I'm sorry if we have rejected you. I'm sorry if we've made you feel like you're not good enough. Jesus never makes people feel like that. He welcomes them. He breaks the power of sin. He breaks sorrow. He breaks heartbreak and he brings hope and life and grace. Somebody say amen. Thank you. <laughs> Fourthly, I'm getting a bit hot. That's not the point. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Is the heating on? Anybody else hot? Yeah, go on, Alan. God bless you. Let's all pray for Alan to turn the heating off. Fourthly, and I don't really understand this. I could go into it more, but I don't have time tonight. Jesus' ministry is marked by mercy. <laughs> Even with evil spirits. Read verses 10 to 13 with me. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank, that's the one I mentioned earlier on, into the lake, and they were drowned in the lake. I could give you lots of reasons for that, theological reasons, but I don't really understand those verses. What I do understand is, is this. I'm almost, I'm almost certain, I can't be certain entirely, but I'm almost certain that these were not Jews. Jews weren't allowed to touch pork. They weren't allowed to have anything to do with pig meat. And the town of Kersa was a Gentile town. And this allotment was probably a Gentile allotment it was probably a place that was being used to uh, produce pigs for the Roman occupiers rather than for Jewish people. You'll have heard many preachers telling you that this was Jews that were ignoring um, the food laws. I'm not sure it was. It might have been, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Kersa and the area around it was a, was a Roman colony within um, uh, Israel. So the presence of the pigs is explained, but if they were Jews and they might have been, then Jesus, casting this 
spirits into the swine and forcing the swine down the hill. And, and, and the, the, the evil spirits force the swine down the hill and into the water. Then Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. Either way, he's doing something quite remarkable here as he shows mercy. There's a powerful passage in the Old Testament where King David is asked about mercy. And he says, I'd far rather trust God's mercy than man's. I would far rather God judge me than you. Because <laughs> he will be kinder. God's mercy is so infinite, so profoundly moving. It's deeper than you could ever, ever dream. And here we see something of the mercy of Jesus and also something of the power of Jesus as he casts these evil spirits into the swine and they go down the hill. Now, my fifth point is this. The change that Jesus makes in this man's life is evident to everybody. In verses 14 to 16, we read, the swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. The change in this man's life is absolutely evident to everybody. Compare our first meeting with him to this meeting. Living in tombs, chained, raving, howling, cutting himself. Now, sitting in his right mind and clothed, at peace at the feet of Jesus. What a remarkable change. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ can do in a human life. And then you get to the end of the story. My last observation before I pull this all together, which I find staggering. Let's read it, verses 17 to 20. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. There are two responses to Jesus then here at the end of the story. Do you see them both? The man who has received mercy from Jesus wants to be with him always. He says, let me be with you. The people who have seen what has happened tell Jesus they want him to go away. Those who are threatened by Jesus want him to go away and leave them alone. But those who have been changed by Jesus never want to leave him. Churches can say to Jesus, go away and leave us alone. They can say to the Holy Spirit, go away and leave us alone. Followers of Jesus Christ, Christians, can say to Jesus, go away and leave us alone because you're exposing our hypocrisy, you're threatening our livelihood, 
and you're making us realize that there's more for us to discover in you and we'd rather stay as we are, thanks. Go away and leave us alone. But a person who has been truly touched by Jesus, who has truly encountered his grace, will want to stay with him forever. Wherever he is, they'll want to be. Whatever he is doing, they will want to be part of. So brothers and sisters, if you're Christians, which are you? Are you the person that says, whatever God is doing, I want to be part of? Are you the person that says, I don't want him to upset my rhythm? I don't want him to expose my hypocrisy. There's nothing more for me to learn. I pray you're the first and not the second. Now go back for a minute to the chapter before this story because it'll help you understand why the story is here. In chapter 4, verse 31, Jesus has just healed a storm. He's just calmed a storm. And here's what we read. And they were filled with great awe, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then in chapter 5, you have a whole series of stories Three of them, actually, about the man who is demon-possessed, about the raising of Jairus' daughter, and about the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage of blood. These stories are tightly condensed and packed because Mark in this chapter, uh, Matthew in chapter 8 and chapter 9, Luke in chapter 7 and chapter 8 are all doing the same thing. They're condensing all these stories together because they're answering that question. Who then is this? That the waves obey him, that demons obey him, that sicknesses are delivered by him, that people that are lost are brought in, that people that are rejected by, him, by society are brought in by Who then is this? And Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has come in bodily form to rescue the excluded and the lost and the rejected and the alone. Who then is this that I've been trying to explain to you tonight? This is Jesus, the one who sets people free, the one who forgives sin, the one who is stronger than Satan, the one who has the power to deliver you from every fear and break every chain and restore you to a right mind, the one who can give you hope and peace and life and grace, the one who never rejects those who come to him. This is Jesus. That's why I'm a Christian. So how do you respond to all of this tonight? I'm conscious that there are two groups of people here, Christians and not Christians, and online. Let me ask first the Christians some questions. Who do you dehumanize? Who do we dehumanize? When I began this message asking you questions about Shemema Begum and about the troubles here in Northern Ireland, don't think for one minute that I was saying that justice doesn't matter. That's not what I was saying. That people shouldn't face the consequences of their actions. I wasn't saying that either. I'm more than happy to explain to you what I think should happen with Shemema Begum. As a British citizen, I think she should be returned to the United Kingdom and immediately arrested and put on trial and face the consequences of her actions. 
What do I think should happen here in Northern Ireland as painful and as difficult and as divisive that you, as you might find it? I think that those that kill people have to face justice. There has to be a conversation. There has to be a way of saying, we're not going to dehumanize you and we're not going to dehumanize the victim. We have to have an honest, grown-up conversation which is painful and difficult and hard, but we're not going to treat anybody as less. Did you dehumanize gay people? Do you dehumanize Muslims? Do you dehumanize black people? Do you dehumanize liberals? Do you dehumanize people who have a different tradition to you? Do you dehumanize neighbors? Do you dehumanize the opposite gender? Do you make fun of men or women? Do you dehumanize colleagues? Who do you dehumanize? Because we all dehumanize someone. And before we can reach conclusions about how we fix it, we have to be honest about it. Going back to the story with Matthew McConaughey at the beginning of my message, that's summing up. Close your eyes and imagine someone standing in front of you who embodies every prejudice that you have. Think about them for a moment. What color are they? How old are they? What religion are they? What part of the world do they come from? What language do they speak? What community are they from? What have they done? What crimes have they committed? Imagine them standing right in front of you and allow your prejudice and your resentment and your fear and your anxiety and your struggle to rise in your spirit. Be honest about it. Let it rise in your soul as you look them in the eye and then ask yourself this, how would I feel if they were my child? Because that changes your response. Who do we dehumanize? Or have you ever felt dehumanized? I have. I'm not going to go into it all tonight, but I have. I felt like an object rather than a person. A nameless person. If you know what it feels like to feel as if you don't matter, that you don't count, that you're only here taking up air, that somehow your life is futile and useless and worthless, even as a Christian, then let Jesus Christ minister grace into your soul tonight. Let him say to you, I love you. I know your name. And other people might class you as the alcoholic or the addict or the money grabber, or the divorcee, or the this or the that, whatever the label might be. Jesus knows your name. And he addresses you with your name. What a wonderful thing. Satan wants to destroy your life, but God wants to give it back to you. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone has the power to change our lives. Jesus and Jesus alone gives us the power to bring such change to other people. So Christian, let God minister into your heart. Let him do something as our service closes in a moment or two that brings life and freedom and deliverance to you. 
those of you that aren't Christians. Stigmatized, labeled, rejected, controlled by forces beyond your understanding, caught in a trap that you can't get out of, living an existence that is simply waiting on dying. Jesus Christ can set you free. He can break every chain. He can forgive every sin. But you have to let him. Can Jesus do this tonight? In your life, Holly? Thank God for the badges. In your life? In your life? In yours? Yes, he can. Imagine. Imagine what the next few moments could look like. I come back to this story. And I find myself asking a question that there is no biblical answer for. Could the musicians come back? Thank you. And I don't like conjecture. I think it's unhelpful, actually. But I can't help wondering who came to see him. Do you think any of his family might have come? I wonder how many people that had given up on him came. And what did they do? Before I'm a preacher or I'm a leader, pretty much before I'm anything other than a Christian and a father and a husband, and a brother. I am a pastor. A gift, I think, in the church, not me, the gift of pastors, that is often made fun of or endured because we have far more important things to do like prepare sermons and manage meetings and build reputations. But a pastor says to you, you matter. Your life matters. God knows your name. He knows what you're going through. He knows your anxieties. He knows what's trapping you. And he has come to give you life. So forget about everything else for a moment. And let the shepherd of your soul come and touch your heart and give you hope again. I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment or two and I don't want any of you to freak out at this because I'm aware that I have been talking about the forces of darkness and I don't need to yell and shout. I don't need to scream. But right now, as the pastor of this church, I take the authority that's being entrusted to me by the name of Jesus Christ. And I declare that in this room, freedom reigns. And that Satan and his lies 
and the forces of darkness are not as strong as the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because when Jesus hung and died, he took every curse upon himself. And I believe that God wants to move in delivering, freeing power in this room. I don't want you to be panicked about that. But in the name of Jesus Christ, if there is any force, if there is any spiritual force that is trying to control anyone in this room, I bind it in the name of Jesus. And I take the authority of the risen Christ and declare that as we worship God, freedom, life, grace, mercy, forgiveness, hope, and release will land in this place like a mighty fire. Let's stand together. Have your way amongst us, Holy Spirit. You are welcome to do what you need to do to set people free in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Now I'm going to ask you for a moment to close your eyes as you're standing. Please do that out of respect to others as well as respect for yourself. I'm not going to make an appeal at the moment, but I'm going to ask you to just say to Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, Lord, if there's something you need to set me free from, then move in my heart over these next few moments. Come in power. Nothing is stronger than you. Even if you don't feel that, declare it. And if you are not yet a Christian, here or online, I'm asking you to pray this simple prayer. God, if you are there, speak to me. Open my heart and let me see who you really are. If you have wandered away and you have tried everything else and you find yourself at the bottom of a pit saying, none of it has brought the satisfaction that it promised me, then in Jesus' name, ask God, to lift you out of that pit as we sing and bring freedom and release to you in Jesus' name. Let's worship God together.